Section 62 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 62, Chapter 18, Monasticism by Dom A.C. Butler. Christian monasticism was a natural outgrowth of the earlier Christian asceticism, which had its roots in the gospel. For it is now recognized that such sayings as, If thou wouldest be perfect, go sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and come follow me, and there are oinochs which made themselves oinochs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it, and the teaching of St. Paul on celibacy did, as a matter of fact, give an impetus to the tendency so common in seriously religious minds towards the practice of asceticism. These tendencies are clearly discernible among Christians from the beginning, and not only among the sects, but also in the great church. Celibacy was the first, and always the chief asceticism, but fasting and prayer and the voluntary surrender of possessions, and also works of philanthropy, were recognized exercises of those who gave themselves up to an ascetical life. This was done at first without withdrawal from the world, or abandonment of home, or the ordinary avocations of life. At an early date, female ascetics received ecclesiastical recognition among the virgins and widows, and there are grounds for believing that at the middle of the third century there already were organized communities of women, for in the life of Anthony we are told that before withdrawing from the world he placed his sister in a house of virgins, the name later used for a nunnery. At this date there was nothing of the kind for men, but at any rate in Egypt the male ascetics used to leave their homes and dwell in huts in the gardens near the towns. For when, circa 270, St. Anthony left the world, it was this manner of life he embraced at first. St. Anthony was born in Middle Egypt about the year 250. When he was twenty, on hearing in church the gospel text, If thou wouldest be perfect, as cited above, he took the words as a personal call to himself, and acted on them, going to practice the ascetical life among the ascetics who dwelt at his native place. After fifteen years so spent, he went into complete solitude, taking up his abode in a deserted fort at a place called Pispir, on the east bank of the Nile, opposite the Fayum, now called Der el Memum, circa 285. In this retreat Anthony spent twenty years in the strictest seclusion, wholly given up to prayer and religious exercises. A number of those who wished to lead an ascetic life congregated around him, desiring that he should be their teacher and guide. At last he complied with their wishes and came forth from his seclusion to become the inaugurator and first organizer of Christian monarchism. This event took place about the beginning of the 4th century, 305 is the traditional date, only a few years later did Pacomius found 
in the far south, the first Christian monastery, properly so called. It will be convenient to trace separately the two streams of monastic tradition that flowed respectively from the two great founders, Anthony and Pacomius. The form of monachism that drew its inspiration from St. Anthony prevailed throughout Lower and Northern Egypt. All along the Nile to the north of Lycopolis, Asyut, and in the adjacent deserts and on the seaboard near Alexandria, there were at the end of the 4th century vast numbers of monks, sometimes living alone, sometimes two or three together, sometimes in large congregations, but even then the life was semi-eremitical. Antonian monarchism reached its greatest and most characteristic development in the deserts of Nitria and Scythe, and it is here that we have the most abundant materials for forming a picture of the life of these monks. Palladius and Cassian both lived in this district for many years during the last decade of the 4th century. St. Jerome, Rufinus, and the writer of the Historia Monocorum visited it, and they have left on record their impressions. Nitria, the present Vadi Natron, is a valley round some nitre lakes lying out in the desert to the west of the Nile, some sixty miles due south of Alexandria. Those who began the monastic life here were Amun and Macarius of Egypt, himself a disciple of Anthony. A few miles from Nitria was the desert called Kelia, from the number of hermit cells that studded it, and further away still, out in the utter solitude, was the monastic settlement of Skeet. Rufinus and the writer of the Historia Monocorum describes Kelia. The cells stood out of sight and out of earshot of one another. Only on the Saturday and Sunday did the monks assemble for the services. All the other time was spent in complete solitude, no one ever visiting another except in case of sickness or for some spiritual need. Palladius says that six hundred lived in Kelia. This was a purely eremitical life, but in Nitria it was otherwise. The following is Palladius' account as he saw it in 319. In Mount Nitria, five thousand monks dwell following different manners of life, each according to his power and desire, so that anyone could live alone, or with another, or with several. In the mountain there are seven bakeries, and a great church, by which stand three palm trees, each with a whip hanging from it. One is for the monks who misbehave themselves, one for thieves, and one for chance-comers, so that anyone who offended and was judged worthy of stripes embraced the palm tree and made amends by receiving on the back the fixed numbers of blows. Close to the church is the guest-house, and any guest who comes is entertained, until he goes of his own accord, even if he stay for two or three years. For the first week they let him stay in idleness, but after that they make him work, either in the garden or the bakehouse or the kitchen. Or if he be a man of position, they give him a book to read, but do not allow him to have intercourse with anyone till noon. Physicians dwell in this mountain and confectioners. They use wine, and wine is sold. They all make linen with their hands, though that they have no needs. 
and about three in the afternoon one may stand and hear how the psalmody arises from each habitation, and fancy oneself wrapped aloft into paradise. But they assemble at the church only on Saturday and Sundays. Palladius tells, too, of one Apollonius, a merchant, who became a monk in Nitria, and being too old to learn a handicraft, purchased medicines and stores at Alexandria, and cared for all the brotherhood in their sicknesses, for twenty years going the round of the cells, from daybreak till three in the afternoon, knocking at the doors to see if anyone was sick, and of another, who, on becoming a monk, retained his money and devoted it wholly to works of hospitality towards the poor, the aged, and the infirm, and was judged by the fathers to be equal in merit to his brother, who had dispossessed himself of his belongings, and given himself up wholly to a life of strict asceticism. What has been said will bring out the special feature of this type of monasticism, its voluntariness. Even when the monks lived together, there was not any common life according to rule. A large discretion was left to each one to follow his own devices in the employment of his time and the practice of his asceticisms. In short, this form of monachism grew out of the eremitical life, and it retained its eremitical or semi-eremitical character, even in the great monastic colonies of Nitria and Skeet. We may now pass to the Pacomian monachism, dominant in the southern parts of Egypt. Pacomius was a pagan by birth. He was born about 290 and became a Christian at the age of 20. He adopted the eremitical life under Palaeomon, a hermit who lived by the Nile in the diocese of Tentira, Denderach. The legend of his call to be the creator of Christian cannabitical life is thus told by Palladius. Pacomius was in an extraordinary degree a lover of mankind and a lover of the brotherhood. While he was sitting in his cave, an angel appeared unto him and said, Thou hast rightly ordered thy own life, Needlessly, therefore, dost thou sit in the cave, come forth and bring together all the young monks, and dwell with them, and legislate for them, according to the exemplar I will give thee. And he gave him a brazen tablet, whereon was engraved the rule. There follows what probably is the most authentic epitome of the earliest Christian rule for monks. St. Pacomius founded his first monastery at Tabenisi, near Denderach, circa 315-320, and by the time of his death, in 346, his order counted nine monasteries of men and one of women, all situated between Panopolis, Akmim, to the north, and Lotopolis, Esnech, to the south, and peopled by some 3,000 monks in all. After his death, other monasteries were founded, one at Canopus near Alexandria, and several in Ethiopia, so that by the end of the century Palladius tells us there were 7,000 Pacomian or Tabenesiot monks. St. Jerome's 50,000 may safely be rejected. Palladius visited the Pacomian monastery at Panopolis, Akmim, and has left us what is by far the most actual and living picture of the daily life. He tells us that there were 300 monks in this monastery, who practiced all the handicrafts, and out of their superabundance, 
contributed to the support of nunneries and prisons. The servers of the week got up at daybreak, and some worked in the kitchen, while others laid the tables, getting them ready by the appointed hour, spreading on them loaves of bread, mustard leaves, olive salad, cheeses, herbs chopped up, and pieces of meat for the old and the sick. And some come in and have their meal at noon, and others at one, or at two, or at three, or at five, or in the late evening, and others every second day. And their work was in like fashion. One worked in the fields, another in the garden, another in the smithy, another in the bakery, another at carpentry, another at fulling, another at basket-making, another in the tan-yard, another at shoemaking, another at tailoring, another at calligraphy. He mentions also that they keep camels and herds of swine. He adds that they learn by heart all the scriptures. From the rule it appears that they assembled in the church four times a day, and approached communion on Saturday and Sunday. Here we have a fully constituted and indeed highly organized cenobitical life, the day being divided between a fixed routine of church services, Bible reading, and work seriously undertaken as an integral factor of the life. Herein lies one of the most significant differences between Pacomian and Antonian monarchisms. In the latter, the references to work are few, and the work is of a sedentary kind, commonly basket-making and linen-weaving, which could be carried on in the cell, and the work was undertaken merely in order to supply the necessaries of life, or to fill up the time that could not be spent in actual prayer or contemplation or the reading of the Bible. Palladius' picture of the Pacomian monastery, on the other hand, is that of a busy, well-organized, self-supporting agricultural colony in which the daily religious exercises only alternated with and did not impede the daily labor that was so large an element of the life. And so this picture is of extraordinary value. Whatever may be thought of the life led by the hermits or quasi-hermits of northern Egypt, there will hardly be two opinions as to the strenuousness and virility of the ideal aimed at by St. Pacomius. The Antonian ideal is the one that, even in accentuated forms, has been in all ages dominant in the East, and it was the form of monarchism first propagated throughout Western Europe. It was not the least of St. Benedict's contributions to Western monarchism that he introduced, with the modifications called for by differences of climate and national character, a type of monarchism more akin to the Pacomian, in which work of one kind or another, undertaken for its own sake, forms an essential part of the life. Having thus traced in the briefest manner the external phenomena of the earliest Christian monarchism, we must say a word on its inner spirit. The theory of philosophy of primitive Christian monarchism finds its fullest expression in Cassian's collations. These are twenty-four conferences of considerable length, which purport to be utterances of several of the most prominent of the Nitriot and Scythic monks, made in response to queries and difficulties put by Cassian himself and his friend Germanus, 
who lived for a number of years in Skeet, between 390 and 400. The collations were not written till 25 years later, and the question has been raised how far they reproduce actual discourses uttered by the various monks named, or are compositions of Cassians a literary device for presenting the teaching and ideas current in Skeet. In any case, there can be no reasonable doubt that they do faithfully represent the substance and spirit of that teaching, and this is all that is of historical importance. Cassian puts into the foreground, in his first collation, an exposition of the purpose or scope of the monastic life. Abbot Moses declares it to be the attainment of purity of heart, so that the mind may rest fixed on God and divine things. For this purpose, only our fastings, watchings, meditation of scripture, solitude, privations to be undertaken. Such asceticisms are not perfection, but only the instruments of perfection. This conference supplies the key to the fundamental conception of the monastic state. It is a systematic and ordered attempt to exercise the tendencies symbolized by the terms mysticism and asceticism, two of the most deeply rooted religious instincts of the human heart, but which beyond most others need regulation and control. Egyptian monarchism was probably at its highest point of development about the year 400, just when Cassian and Palladius came in contact with it. Without accepting the probably apocryphal figures given by some of the authorities, there can be no doubt that there were at that date very many thousands of monks in Egypt. And the original enthusiasms and spirituality of the movement still, on the whole, held sway. But with the 5th century, the decay set in, which has gone on progressively till our day. The Egyptian monks who had been the great adherents of the Catholic faith in the Aryan times, became the chief supporters of Dioscorus in making the Egyptian church monophysite. As the Mohammedan invasion swept over Egypt, the monasteries were in great measure destroyed, and Egyptian monasticism has ever since been gradually dying out. At the present day only a few monasteries survive, and the institution is in a moribund condition, unless some unlooked-for revival come about. When we pass from Egypt to the Oriental lands, we find that in Palestine, monastic life was introduced from Egypt by Hilarion early in the 4th century. He had been a disciple of Anthony, and the life he led in Palestine was purely eremitical. There are traces of Cenobitic monasteries in Palestine during the 4th century, especially those established under Western influences, as by St. Jerome and Paula, Rufinus and the two Melanias. But the glimpses of Palestinian monarchism, the end of the century given us by Palladius in the Lausiaic history, revealed the fact that it remained in large measure eremitical. In Syria and Mesopotamia, whether in the Roman or in the Persian territories, there was at the beginning of the 4th century what appears to have been an indigenous growth of asceticism analogous to the pre-monastic asceticism found in Egypt and elsewhere. 
the institution was known as the Sons of the Covenant, and the members were bound to celibacy and the usual ascetical practices, but they were not monks properly so called. We hear much of them from Aphraates, circa 330, and Rabula, bishop of Edessa a century later, wrote a code of regulations for priests and sons of the covenant. As he wrote also a rule for monks, it seems clear that the sons of the covenant did not develop into a monastic system, but the two institutions existed alongside of each other, till at any rate the middle of the 5th century. The beginnings of monachism proper in the Syrian lands are difficult to trace. It is probable that the story of Eugenius, who was said to have introduced monasticism from Egypt in the early years of the 4th century, must be rejected as legendary. Theodoret opens his Historia Religiosa, or Lives of the Syrian Monks, with an account of one Jacob, who lived as an hermit near Nisibis before 325. But as this was a century before Theodoret's time, the facts must remain somewhat doubtful. He gives accounts of a number of Syrian monks in the end of the 4th century and the beginning of the 5th. Most of them were hermits, and even when disciples gathered around them, the life continued to be strongly individualistic and eremitical. This has continued to be the tendency of Syrian monarchism, both Nestorian and Monophysite. Cenobitical life was commonly only the first stage of a monk's career. The goal aimed at was to be a hermit. After a few years, each monk withdrew to a cell at a distance from the monastery to live in solitude, frequenting the monastic church only on Sundays and feasts. Rabula's admonitions for monks, circa 425, are of great interest. He lays down that no one is thus to become an hermit until he has been proved in a monastery for a considerable time. The following regulation is of special interest. Those who have been made priests and deacons in the monasteries and have been entrusted with churches in the villages shall appoint as superiors those who are able to rule the brotherhood, and they themselves shall remain in charge of their churches. The practice here indicated, of monks serving churches, is probably unique in the East. It has been done in the West in later times, but has always been regarded as abnormal. Thus, while in Egypt the tendency was to abandon the eremitical life for the xenobitical, in Syria, the opposite tendency set in. In another respect, too, Syrian monarchism developed along lines different from those that prevailed in Egypt. Egyptian monks practiced, it is true, austerities and mortifications of the severest kind, but they were what may be called natural, as prolonged abstinence from food and sleep, exposure to heat and cold, silence and solitude, heavy labor and physical fatigue, in Syria, on the contrary, austerities of a highly artificial character became the vogue. The extraordinary life of the pillar hermits, who abode for years on the summits of pillars, at once presents itself in illustration. Theodoret and the other authorities speak as if it were a common practice that monks should carry continually fastened to their backs great stones or iron weights, 
Rabula forbids this except to hermits. Sozomen tells us of a kind of Syrian monk called Grazers, who used to go out into the fields at mealtimes and eat grass like cattle. A good picture of the lines on which Syrian monarchism settled down after the 6th century is afforded by Thomas of Marga's Book of the Governors, or History of the Great Nestorian Monastery of Bess Abhe in Mesopotamia. All the evidence shows that the ingrained oriental hankering after asceticism, still found in Hindu fakirs, asserted itself in Syrian monarchism from the beginning, and it has there at all times been a characteristic feature of the system. Monasticism seems to have made its entry into Greek-speaking lands from the east. It first appears in the Roman province of Armenia in connection with Eustathius of Sebasti, circa 330-340. The claim has been made, indeed, that monasteries were established in Constantinople by Constantine, but this must be regarded as legend. There probably were none there before the end of the 4th century. The monasticism of Eustathius was of a highly ascetical character, with strongly developed Manichaean tendencies, which are condemned at the Council of Gangra, circa 340. Similar in character, but carrying the same tendencies to still greater extremes, were the Messalians or Oikiti in Paphlagonia, described by Epiphanius. The real father of Greek monarchism was Saint Basil. After spending a year in visiting the monks of Egypt and Syria, he retired, circa 360, to a lonely spot near Neo-Caesarea in Pontus, and there began to lead a monastic life with the disciples who quickly gathered around him. His conception of the monastic life was in many important points a new departure, and it proved epoch-making in the history of monarchism. It has continued to this day the fundamental conception of Greek and Slavonic monasticism, and St. Benedict, though he borrowed more in matter of detail from Cassian, in matter of principles and ideas, owed more to St. Basil than to any other monastic legislator. Thus, in the monasticism of both East and West, St. Basil's ideas still live on. For this reason, it will be proper to give a somewhat full account of his monastic legislation. The materials are to be found chiefly in the two sets of rules, the longer and the shorter, the authenticity of which is now recognized, and in certain of his letters, supplemented by letters of St. Gregory Nassianzen to him. St. Basil's construction of the monastic life was fully cenobitical, in this respect advancing beyond that of St. Pacomius. In the Pacomian system the monks dwelt in different houses, within the monastery precincts, the meals were at different hours, and all assembled in the church only for the greater services. But St. Basil established a common roof, a common table, a common prayer always, so that we meet here for the first time in Christian monastic legislation the idea of the cenobium, and common life properly so called. Again, St. Basil declared against even the theoretical superiority of the eremitical life over the cenobitical. 
he asserted the principle that monks should endeavor to do good to their fellow men, and in order to bring works of charity within reach of his monks, orphanages were established, separate from the monasteries but close at hand, and under the care of the monks, in which apparently children of both sexes were received. Boys also were taken into the monasteries to be educated, and not with the view of their becoming monks. Another new feature in St. Basil's conception of the monastic life was his discouragement of excessive asceticism. He enunciated the principle that work is of greater value than austerities, and drew the conclusion that fasting should not be practiced to such an extent as to be detrimental to work. All this represents a new range of ideas. The following is an outline of the actual daily life in St. Basil's monasteries. A period of novitiate or probation of indeterminate length had to be passed, at the end of which a profession of virginity was made, but no monastic vows were taken. Palladius, writing in 420, says, in the prologue to the Lausiac history, that it is better to practice the monastic life freely, without the constraint of a vow. But though there were no vows, St. Basil's monks were considered to be under a strict obligation of persevering in the monastic life, and of abiding in their own monastery. Their time was divided between prayer, work, and the reading of Holy Scripture. They rose for the common psalmody while it was still night, and chanted the divine praises till the dawn. Six times each day did they assemble in the church for prayer. Their work was field labor and farming. St. Gregory Nassianzen speaks of the plowing and vine-dressing, the wood-drawing and stone-hewing, the planting and draining. The food and clothing, too, the housing and all the conditions of life, he describes as being coarse and rough and austere. The monastic virtues of obedience to the superior, of personal poverty, of self-denial, and the cultivation of the spiritual life and of personal religion are insisted on. The Basilian form of monarchism was the one that spread in the adjacent provinces of Asia Minor and in Armenia, and under the influence of the Council of Chalcedon, which passed several canons regulating the monastic life, and of the civil law, it gradually made its way and became recognized throughout the Greek portion of the empire as the official form of monastic life. But the eastern tendency towards the practice of extreme austerity and the eremitical life has always struggled to find expression, and to this day there are hermits on Mount Athos and at other monastic centers of the Orthodox Church. In the 5th century, the Holy Land became the head center of Greek monarchism, and monasteries of two kinds arose in considerable numbers. There were the Cenobia, or monasteries proper, where the life was according to the lines laid down by St. Basil, and there were the Loras, wherein a semi-eremitical life was followed, the monks living in separate huts within the enclosure. St. Sabas, a Cappadocian, was the great organizer of this manner of life. He founded no fewer than seven loras in Palestine, and drew up a typicon or codes of rules for their guidance. 
Sabas was appointed exarch of all the loras of Palestine, while his compatriot and contemporary Theodosius became archimandrite of all the Cenobia of Palestine. Under the stress of the originistic controversy and of the Arab invasion, Palestinian monarchism waned, and in the 7th century the center of gravity of Greek monasticism shifted to Constantinople, where in the early years of the 9th century it underwent a reorganization at the hands of Theodore, abbot of the monastery of the Studium. In the 11th and 12th centuries the center of gravity again shifted, this time to Mount Athos, where it has ever since remained. Since the time of Theodore, the studied Greek and Slavonic monarchism has undergone little change. It is still St. Basil's monarchism, but the elements of hard labor and of works of charity have been almost wholly eliminated from the life, and intellectual work has not, as in the West, taken their place on any large scale. Indeed, it has usually been discouraged, so that for the past thousand years, Greek and Slavonic monks have been almost wholly given up, in theory at any rate, and in great measure in practice too, to a life of purely devotional contemplation. They do not call themselves Basilians, but simply monks, and St. Basil's rules scarcely hold a leading place in the code of monastic legislation that regulates their life. While the monastic system was in its primitive, unorganized state, it lent itself to certain obvious abuses. Anyone who chose could become a hermit and live according to his own devices. Impostors and charlatans under the guise of pretended austerities deceived the simple and lived upon alms received on false pretenses. These abuses seem to have attained a great magnitude in Syria at the middle of the 5th century, if we may judge from the vigorous protests of Isaac of Antioch, but they existed everywhere. They led to the gradual regulation of the monastic life and the subjecting of the monks to the authority of the bishops. In this way, a body of legislation, both ecclesiastical and civil, grew up, which restricted the voluntariness of the system and made it an integral part of the general polity of both church and state. This ecclesiasticizing of the monks is often deplored, but it was part of the inevitable march of events, and a condition of the continued existence of the institution. In the 5th and 6th centuries, other tendencies made themselves felt, and the monks in great numbers became embroiled in the ecclesiastical politics and the theological controversies of the time. Sometimes they were on the orthodox side, sometimes on the heterodox, but on whatever side they stood, they were only too often violent and fanatical, and some of the most discreditable episodes of church history in those days were the work of Eastern monks, as the murder of Flavian at the robber's synod of Ephesus. Before we pass to the West, it will be well to speak of the nuns in Egypt and the East. It has already been said at the beginning of this chapter, when speaking of the pre-monastic Christian ascetics, that communities of women existed at an earlier date than communities of men, in Egypt as early as the middle of the 3rd century. 
The records of Egyptian monarchism agree in representing women as taking part in great numbers in every phase of the monastic movement. There were women who lived as hermits and as recluses, shut up in tombs. There are various stories of women disguising themselves as men and living in monasteries and being discovered only after death. Pacomius founded two nunneries, one under his sister at Tabenisi, the other which numbered 400 nuns near Panopolis, Akmim, and after his death many others were founded in his order. The famous Coptic abbot Senuti of Atripe governed a great community of nuns in addition to the monks of the White Monastery. We learn from Palladius that at the end of the 4th century there were numerous nunneries in all parts of monastic Egypt, and the glimpses he lets us see of their inner life are graphic and interesting. He tells us of one Dorotheus, who had the spiritual charge of a nunnery, and used to sit at a window overlooking the convent, keeping the peace among the nuns. Also of an old nun, Mother Talis, superioress of a convent at Antino, so beloved by her nuns that there was no need of a key in that convent, as in others, to keep the nuns from wandering, as they were fast tied by love of her. End of section 62